Christian Athletes Bible. There's about four of these out there. They're so new, they're still in the wrapper. I thought that was really cool. And so if you're an athlete and you want a Bible, there's a Bible out there just for you. This is a Bible that I saw and I actually wanted for myself. I thought it was really awesome. It's a parallel Bible. I don't know if you've ever had a parallel Bible, but when you open it up, there's one translation on one side and one on the next one. This one happens to be the NIV, New International Version, right next to the message, which is a paraphrase. Great Bible that costs a lot of money, but somebody has donated for free. And if you want that Bible, it's out in the lobby. A translation that I've been reading a lot of, and this is, I just brought this one because it's a beautiful Bible, is called the English Standard Version. And um, I'm actually reading this a lot more because my son uses this in his school. He goes to a Christian school. And I really enjoyed the ESV version. We've got a few of those outside. And something I have never seen, maybe you have, somebody donated baby's first Bible. And I thought, oh, that's awesome. So we even have a few children's Bibles outside, about eight of those. And so if you want a, a Bible for your child or maybe even baby's first Bible, you can grab one of those. So we're going to put those, these as well as many more of those out in the lobby. Drop by there and grab a Bible if you want a Bible. Now, as we begin this series, um, I want to tell you, and from, for some of you, this is your first time being at Harvest Point, I want to tell you that um, I am very honored to journey through these very big questions. It is, it is a sobering responsibility, in my opinion, to seek to answer some of the largest questions that humanity has ever asked, especially in the context of a short period of time, like a message or a sermon. And so I just want to tell you that I am trying to study very well um, the, 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 the realms and, of anthropology, um, theology, science, philosophy to be able to answer these huge questions. Because when we address a big God question like we're going to do today, these questions have been debated and argued. People have been asking these questions since the beginning of our existence. And so they're huge. And there's a lot of, a lot of conversation has happened around it. And I want you to know that I consider it a great honor to be able to delve in and explore the answers with you to each one of these questions. Now, I invite you also to bring friends. This is a great series, and your friends, I promise you, have had the questions that we're going to be addressing every week. So invite them to be a part of this series with us. Now, today's question is, we start with this one. It's question number one. Is God real, and how can I know it? We're starting with that question because, let's be honest, why even answer any of the other questions if that question we don't have an answer to? Why talk about is God good because there's evil and suffering in the world? Why talk about will all religions meet, lead us to heaven? Why talk about any of that unless we know the answer to is God real and how can I know it? So that's question number one and that's where we're going to start. And I'm going to start in Psalm chapter 19 and then we're going to begin to kind of unravel the answer to that question as we move forward. Psalm chapter 19. If you have your Bible in front of you, I invite you to turn there with me. Or maybe you just got your outline in front of you. The scriptures will appear on the screen. We're going to read from Psalm 19 verses 1 through 4. I'm going to get you to do me a favor, if you will. I'm going to get you to read this scripture out, full voice, okay? Sometimes it helps me to actually read a scripture. My ears actually hear me, and it actually makes a little bit more of an impact on me. So as we begin this kind of theme scripture for us today, Psalm 19, I want to invite you to read it with me. Come on, church, let's read together. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. 
night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. The psalmist basically said, we live in a world, we live on a planet, we live in a universe where everything around us is crying out that there is a God. I track myself back to the places where I have experienced God the most by just being in His creation. I'm a beach person. I don't know about you. Some people are mountain people. Some people are lake people, right? I'm a beach person. And I've got to tell you, I love standing on the edge of a beach when the sun is rising and just feeling the expansiveness of something much bigger than me. Have you ever stood on a beach before at nighttime and you just looked up and you could see the stars far more clearly than you might just out in your own front yard? And you looked up and it just seemed like the galaxies were displayed over your head and you thought to yourself, man, this world, this universe I live in is so much bigger than me. My family and I were on vacation recently and I always take time to, even if I'm with my family, consider it kind of a spiritual retreat to be at the beach. And I always make time to get by myself and just experience the beauty of what I consider to be God's creation. And it's in those moments that I feel like I experience God's presence. And I just wonder about you. Have you ever had a moment like that where you just felt that God was there in that moment? It could have been on top of a mountain. It could have been on a boat. It could have been walking through a garden. Have you ever had a moment like that? See, the psalmist would say that in that moment that you felt like that, God was communicating to you. The psalmist would say this, the heavens, the skies, the stars, the ocean, it screams out that God is there. That's pretty powerful, guys. That's, that's a big deal. But everyone, everyone, everyone who's ever lived and breathed Everyone will have the question from time to time, is God real and how can I know it? Why is that? Well, it's basically this, because God requires us to have faith that He is. He requires us to have faith. You've probably read this scripture before, let me read it to you. From Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the Bible says this, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That's what faith is. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, or maybe you've thought this for a long period of time, faith is just for weak people. Faith is is for the weak-minded. But I want you to consider how often you use faith every day. Many of you, if not all of you, got in a car to come here today, right? A car or a truck. You had faith that you were going to be able to get in that car and arrive at church safely. You had faith that you weren't going to die along the way. You even had faith that when you turned that key, that thing would crank. You have faith. You know, we have faith in money a lot of times. We we put our money in the stock market and have faith that it's actually going to grow. We have faith when it comes to our jobs. I mean, you go work at a job trusting and having faith After two weeks or after a month, somebody's going to write you a check. You know, that's called faith. You have faith everywhere you are. Have you ever thought about how much faith you have 
in getting married. It takes faith to get married, don't you agree? I mean, yeah, I heard that. Amen. Yeah. yeah, it takes faith to get married because you're trusting that other person is going to be faithful to you. It takes faith. Did you know what? It takes faith. You had faith this morning when you woke up that there was going to be enough air in this world that you'd breathe again. Now, you might not have thought about it, but you had faith that when you awakened, you'd be able to breathe. See, sometimes I don't think we realize how often we use faith, but we use faith all the time. Now, what I want to share with you in this series is a lot, what a lot of people think when it comes to God, that our faith has to be blind faith. Oh, you just have to trust that He exists. And what I want to share with you is that God wants us to use an informed faith. He is revealing Himself all the time. It's not a blind faith. And so in the same way that you have informed faith, for example, you make a deposit in a bank to have faith they're going to hold your money, you've looked at that bank. You know that there's a a guaranteed deposit and FDIC behind them, right? You, you, You put your money in the stock market because you've looked at the portfolios and you've seen that it's grown a certain amount of time. You've looked at that and now you're trusting it will continue to grow, Right? You had faith. You go and work at that job for two weeks or for a month, trusting that paycheck, but you're trusting also because you know, and it's an informed faith, that you know who they are. You decided to work for them. You didn't have to work for them. You took the job, and it was an informed decision. You see how they're paying everybody else. Even in our marriages, we have informed faith. We don't just go out and get married, right? We journey for a while. We test that person. We, we want to see if they're all along the way before we ever get married. Guys, God is the same way. He wants you to have an informed faith. And that's what I'm going to talk with you about today. When we say, okay, is God real and how can I know it? We're not just saying, okay, I hope you have some blind faith. What we're actually saying is that God has put some markers, some pointers out there to his existence, and he wants you to look at those and examine those and look at them and use, them, use your brain, use logic to answer the question, Is God real? And so today, I'm going to be talking with you about those pointers. And I'm going to share four classic pointers to the existence of God. All right? So if you've got your pen handy, I'm going to invite you to take some notes down. I'm going to invite you to fill in some blanks, maybe even underline some scriptures as we go along. And the first one of those four pointers, we would call the teleological proof. And it's basically this, right in that blank. It's the existence of stuff, okay? The teleological proof. Now, what does teleological mean, Stephen? Teleological is is basically this. When you look at something, you you can examine it, and you can look at what it is, and you can begin to think about why it is. What caused is its existence. The teleological proof, and this is simply it, the existence of stuff. Now, here's the deal. Stuff exists, and that's a problem for atheists, okay? It is, because if stuff didn't exist, then we wouldn't need to explain how stuff got to be here, okay? We wouldn't need to explain it, but the fact is that stuff exists. You and I live in a universe that is real. We see it. We study it. We know about the universe we live in, and stuff it, it has been, it exists, and we must ask the question why or how it came into existence. So, in order to, to use this, I remember when I was a youth pastor, I used to try to teach this to youth by using a ball. 
We have something that we call, as a law of our universe, cause and effect. All right? Cause and effect. If something has an effect, it has a cause. So watch this. It's, it's, it's kind of like this. Cause, effect. Cause, effect. The effect of a ball bouncing must have a cause. What's the cause? I have bounced that ball. I have thrown that ball towards the ground. And it is a cause-effect relationship. You and I live in a cause-effect world. We know that. That's the law of the universe that we live in. Cause-effect. And so what we have to ask ourselves is simply this. If something does exist, if that is the effect, what was the cause of it? How did it get to be here? Who or what put it here and made it happen? And that is the beginning proof, I believe, for the existence of God. It's simply this. It's the existence of stuff. And we have to begin to ask ourselves, where did it come from? A few minutes ago, I asked you guys to pull out your phones, all right? You pulled out your phones, and there are probably a lot of different shapes and sizes, but each one of those phones, you, you would have that phone. Some of you guys might have Androids or iPhones. You might have big phones or small phones. But every one of those phones were intricately made. They're very smartly made. And you look at that, and you think to yourself, that's stuff. Now, what caused it to exist? And when you begin to ask that question, you begin to get at the root of why we, why we can answer the question about the existence of God. So we start off with a proof called the teleological proof, the existence of stuff. And there, we live in a universe filled with stuff, and so we have to ask the question, who or what or how did it get here today? Here's the second one. I'm going to go through these pretty fast, so I hope you're taking notes. The second one is what we would call the cosmological proof, Okay. The cosmological proof. Now, the cosmological proof is the nature of stuff. And I'm going to hold these two together, the teleological proof, the existence of stuff, and the cosmological proof, the nature of stuff. And for a little while, if it's okay, I'm not going to move to point three. I'm just going to kind of hold these two things together. Now, what's the difference between the existence of stuff and the nature of stuff? A big difference. The existence of stuff, we examine and say, how did it get here? Why did it get here? The nature of stuff, we begin to examine it and we begin to look at the principles behind it and see if we can understand who or what brought it into existence. So when we talk about the nature of stuff, I guess one answer that somebody could give is stuff, the answer how it got here, teleological, how did it get here? Somebody could say, well, it was all self-created. The stuff that's in our universe was self-created. But here's the problem with that thinking. Here's the problem with that logic. Scientists tell us that we live in a universe that is largely contingent. You might want to write that down. That's that's important. Scientists tell us we live in a universe where everything is contingent. What do you mean by contingent, Stephen? Everything in our universe is dependent upon something else. Have you ever thought about this before? Everything in our universe is dependent upon something else. The very chair that you sit in would not have been, it did not self-create, right? Something else, it was dependent upon something else to make it. So let's let's think about a few of the things that are in our universe that certainly are not self-created. Scientists would tell us everything in our universe is contingent. It is dependent upon something else. It is not self-reliant. So for example, a tree. A tree. Is a tree self-created? Think about all that a tree needs and that it is contingent upon to exist. 
It needs light. It needs soil. It needs oxygen. A tree needs other things. It cannot create itself. Think about our earth. Our earth cannot exist and was not self-created. Our earth is dependent upon so many forces, literally gravity. It's, it's, it's dependent upon chemical balances. Our earth is dependent upon the sun. There are so many things that our earth is dependent upon. It is, it, it, it is not self-reliant. It is not self-dependent. It is contingent upon other things. The scientists are right that everything in our universe is contingent. How about the sun, Stephen? Think about our sun for a minute. Our sun could not exist without gravity alone. Our sun has to have all kinds of thermonuclear reactions just to continue to exist. It is not self-dependent. So much of our world, all of our world, scientists would say, is contingent. And by the way, this is called the argument of contingency. Everything is dependent. And so what we, be, what we must kind of pull out of that is that nothing in our universe is self-reliant and nothing in our universe is self-caused. Now, to kind of explain this to you, we, we've got to begin to ask ourselves, then who or what created all these objects? I'll get you to zoom out for a minute, okay? I know I'm kind of talking at a high level, so let's just talk. Let's zoom way out. I want to hold up this hula hoop before you, okay? And I want you to think of all that you know that exists, and I want you in your mind's eye to put it in there, all right? Our planet is in there. Our solar system is in there. The galaxies beyond our so all of the universe and all that you know exists inside that hula hoop. Now here's what I want you to understand. The second law of thermodynamics says this. It's called the law of entropy. That everything that we know of is slowly moving towards non-existence. Everything that we know of is self-reliant I'm sorry, it's not self-reliant or not self-caused. It is contingent. Everything. That means literally. I looked it up on Google this morning. Did you know that our earth is slowing and slowing and slowing? Did you know that? The earth is not moving at a constant speed. The second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, says that everything in that circle, all of the universe, is slowly moving towards non-existence. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Okay? But what that really means is that everything in that circle that you know of, everything in our universe, it is, again, it is, it is contingent upon something else. And here's the big question, okay? Here's the big question. When you think about who is responsible for bringing all these dependent things into existence, do you think that entity is inside the circle or outside the circle? Now think about the, 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 the I think the wise person would say that something outside the circle that absolutely is self-reliant, that, that is not contingent or dependent upon anything else, is the one who brought all of that dependent, contingent stuff into existence. The thinking mind would say that all of that stuff has to be explained by something beyond all of that stuff. So when we talk about the nature of things, that's what we're talking about, right? The cosmological proof. When we talk about the nature of things, what we're really talking about is how things exist. What is their nature? And if in our universe everything is moving towards non-existence, if it's contingent and if it's, if it's relying upon something else, there must be a higher power, there must be something greater, something or some person 
who brought all of that into existence. Are you with me? Are you, are you following me? So we're talking about the nature of stuff. Uh, let's, I, I zoomed you way out, okay? Now let's zoom all the way back in for a minute, okay? I brought a, I brought a Diet Coke. Let's zoom in on that for a minute, okay? I'm going to tell you a story, and I want you to see if you believe it, okay? All right, here we go. One time, there was an explosion. And in that grand explosion of gases, there was a huge rock formation that came out of it. And out of that grand rock formation, as it hurtled through space and blackness, some brown liquid began to come out of the rock. And that liquid, that liquid began to form. And even from the formation of that liquid, it began to release from itself metal. And the metal began to shape itself into a a can that could fit in a human hand. And, and then it was amazing because even the metal would form a nice little pull top on the very top of it. And then out from the metal came these beautiful colors of black and red. And even an Olympic logo was formed from... And oh, the taste just so happened to come by chance. You know, the thinking person would look at the nature of things. That's what we're talking about, the cosmological proof. The thinking person would look at the nature of something that exists, and they would say, hmm, why and how did that come to be? While looking at the teleological proof, the, the, the existence of this stuff, and the nature of it, the thinking person would look at it and say, Hmm, that tastes good. I bet that didn't happen by accident. I bet some thinking, very smart person came up with a good idea and they made that thing. Guys, a Coke can can tell us a lot about how we think about the stuff that exists all around us. Now, you and I both know, especially from Atlanta, Georgia, where the Coke product came from. But while we're zoomed in, let's stay here for a minute, okay? I brought another product. I brought bananas. Anybody like bananas? Okay. I'm going to pass a few bananas out, and I'm going to invite you to share them with me. By the way, at this church, you might get hit by something when it's thrown. Who likes a banana over here? There you go, Lynn. And one more. I'm going to pick somebody up. There you go. And one more over here. I see you. Yeah. All right. Now, what's amazing about a banana, think about this. We're talking about the nature of stuff. Who made it? Where did it come from? A banana. This is very interesting. It's got a slight bend to it. It's got a, a nice little pull tab on the top. It comes in a time-sensitive wrapper. How cool is that? Green means it's not quite ready yet, right? Yellow means, okay, let's have some fun. Black means banana bread. Banana bread. Yeah, that's what black means, banana bread. That's right. It's a non-slip surface, and isn't it beautiful? It just, when you unfold it, it just kind of fits over the human hand. 
And it's even shaped, kind of come back towards the human mouth. And it tastes really good. And when you think about a banana, I think you start to say, hmm, where'd that come from? Is it just by chance? See, some people would, get, would want you to believe, oh, those things are just by chance. They just happen out of nowhere. But I think the psalmist would say to us, just like he said, the heavens cry out day and night. The, the stars, night and day, cry out the existence of God. Maybe he's even saying, the Amazon jungles and the bananas cry out, scream out the existence of God. There's some folks who wouldn't want you to answer this with your brain. And I would say to you, the, the, the atheists, the Darwinists, all those folks, I would say to you that they are really trying to get you to take a blind leap of faith. But God says, look around. Look around and see if you don't see intelligent design. And see if you can't track that intelligent design even around the universe that you live in. Does that make sense? So a classic proof of the existence of God is the very nature of stuff. Stuff is important. Now, hold on a second. One last bite. All right. So, Scripture real quick that I want to read to you from that. Listen to this. Romans 1.20 For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. God wants us to have an informed faith. And even in Psalm 19, he says, look around the, look around the world and you will see. Listen, I've created a creation that's pointing towards me. Romans would say, listen, you can look at the world around you and you can see the invisible qualities of God. And he's put those in the creation so that you would believe. So we've talked about the teleological proof. Well, stuff exists. And we've got to explain why and how stuff exists. We've talked about the cosmological proof that the nature of things is that they are contingent and they're dependent of everything in our universe. There must be something outside the hula hoop, outside of all that we know, that is self-dependent, self-reliant, that made all that stuff. Now let's talk about a third proof of the existence of God. And we would call this the moral proof. Write that one down. The moral proof, it's my sense of right and wrong. My sense, your sense of right and wrong. Now, anybody know who Anton Scalia, uh, Scalia, is that his name, right? Scalia, thank you, Scalia. Uh, One of our our Supreme Court uh, justices passed away. And did you notice how all of America took note? Why are we so interested, think for a minute, why are we so interested in who the Supreme Court is and who sits on the Supreme Court, right? Here's the answer to that question. We believe there is such a thing as right and wrong, good and evil. And we place people at the very top of our nation over even a court where a judge decides for other people what is good and what is evil. We all, beyond just the, the care 
or the concern of who sits on the Supreme Court. We all have this sense of right and wrong, of good and evil. Every one of us. And by the way, anthropologists would tell us that this sense of right and wrong is universal. doesn't matter what culture, doesn't matter what continent that you go on, humans have this sense of morality, this sense of what is right and wrong. Real quickly, just a test in this room real quickly. How many of you have had an, a, an, a, an, a point or a bar, a, you had a measure of what you wanted to live up to, of what you thought was the right and the best thing, and you chose something else, you chose that which was wrong at any moment in your life, and in that moment you sensed you were doing wrong, not doing right. Raise your hand. That should be every hand in the place. See, this is a human phenomenon, that all of us have a moral code. All of us have a sense of what is right and wrong. And scientists would say, this is everywhere. Now here's the question for you. When you raise your hand, here's the question. Where'd you get that? Where did you get that sense of what is right and what is wrong? Did you, did you self-create that? Did you decide one day all the things that you thought were right and all the things that you thought were wrong and then you said, I'm going to live by that code? No, none of us did that. You didn't self-create that code within yourself. Or maybe you've lived most of your life thinking, well, I learned right and wrong from mom and dad. Well, thankfully, most of us did learn some right and wrong from mom and dad, right? But the truth of the matter is, they spoke into that moral code, but they were already influenced by a higher power that put that moral code in their place. And there's a lot beyond mom and dad that we've added to our own moral code about what we think is right and what we think is wrong. So where did you get that moral code? If it wasn't self-created, and if more of your moral code was put there than beyond just your family unit, where did it come from? And most of us would have to say, there, the thinking person would have to say, there must be some type of higher source that gave me that moral code. By the way, the Bible would say that's the case. Look at what the Bible says in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Indeed, when Gentiles, that's people who are not Jewish, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, what is the law? The Mosaic law, the, you know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not lie. Indeed, Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things that are required of the law. What, what, the, what the writer of Romans here is saying, Paul is saying, listen, they don't even have the Mosaic law, but they don't go around killing people. They don't go around uh, stealing from people. They have a moral code that is very much similar to the code that Moses gave us. Indeed, Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law. They are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witnesses. And their thoughts sometimes accusing them. And at other times even defending them. See, the writer of Romans would say that the very right and wrong moral code that you and I have was written on your heart before your life began. Real quickly, recapping some of these things. Think with me for a minute. We live in a cause and effect society. And we must ask ourselves if the effect, if we live in a world that there is stuff, what caused it? What brought it? 
to being. And if we live in a world where everything is contingent inside this circle and in this universe, if everything is dependent, is the one who created this world or, or, or brought it to be inside the circle or outside the circle, the thinking mind must ask that. Is, like the psalmist said, the whole world, the whole universe we cry out, is it exclaiming that there is a God? And what about that moral code that you didn't come up with, but that was written on your hearts? You know, the Bible says this. God has revealed Himself three ways. You might want to write this down. It's good stuff. The Bible says that God has revealed Himself three different ways. He's revealed Himself, number one, through creation. We read that already, right? Psalm chapter 19. The heavens, the skies, the stars, they cry out day and night. He's revealed Himself through creation. A second way that God has revealed Himself, He's revealed Himself through the Word. He says He has revealed His divine nature and His qualities through the Holy Bible, through the Scriptures. And a third way that God has revealed Himself is through the personhood of Jesus Christ. Jesus came here to show us the Father. He said so. He came to show us that a God did exist. Let me tell you my story. And if you will, write down point number four. Point number four, the, the fourth classic proof. And I would tell you it's more important than all the other ones I've laid out for you. Teleological, cosmological, or even the moral proof. The fourth proof is personal experience. Personal experience is a story of what God has done in my life. And so let me tell you what God did in my life. I was a messed up young man with a little filthy mouth and a, fifth, a filthy mind. But thank be to God, one day in that very place where I so often experienced God, I was at a beach. And it was at that beach one night that I got by myself, I put my knees in the sand, and I looked up into the skies. I can't tell you that I knew Psalm 19 at the time, but I, can I tell you that that sky was filled with stars and Psalm 19 was true for me? That I felt like there was something much bigger than me out there. And I had never formally cried out and, and asked if there was a God, but that night with knees in a cold sand of a beach in South Carolina, looking up to a moon as bright as day, I whispered a simple prayer. And when I whispered that prayer, I whispered that prayer to two different places. One place I whispered that prayer was to the depth of my own soul. And another place that I whispered that prayer was to as far out to the edge of the universe as I could imagine. And here was the simple prayer that I cried out. If there is a God, and you can hear me, I want to know that you exist. Are you there? That's one of the simplest prayers. A child prayed it. I was 11 years old at the time. And I don't know if you've ever prayed a prayer like that, but when I whispered that to my soul, and I whispered that to the edge of the universe, I can only tell you that I sense deep in my soul the answer. I am. That was the answer I received that day. And I said, then if you are, I want to give you my life and I want to love you with all my heart. 
And I can only tell you my story. I heard a gentle, a gentle voice in my soul, not audibly. When I said, I love you, God said, I love you too. You know, as a young child, I had not studied all the proof. I just cried out. And I experienced God. And I believe the greatest proof that God exists is probably not even found in all those other places of all the different creation. I believe the greatest proof is in the creation of the human life. When God comes into this creation and He transforms a life. So for me, it wasn't right away, but God came into this soul of mine. He came into this soul and He began to guide me and direct me. He began to love me as a perfect Heavenly Father. Boy, I was filled with anger. I had all kinds of temper issues. It took Him a little while to help me with that. But across time, through this ever-present relationship with Jesus Christ, I began to become more and more, and still working on to this day, becoming more and more like God. Real quickly, that's my story. I wonder if we could just get you to raise your hands, but not yet. Here's how I want to get you to raise your hands. If you've ever had a story, anything like mine, where you whispered a prayer deep to your own soul, but out to the edge of all that you knew, and you asked God if He was there, and you prayed a prayer, and you felt like you heard God very slowly, would you just begin to raise your hand? If you've had a personal experience with God where you felt like God showed and revealed to you that He existed, raise your hand up. Just look across the crowd for a minute. You see all those different stories? Thank you. I think those stories are far more powerful than even all the other proofs because they are our stories. One time I heard somebody said, a man with an argument, there's a lot of people who want to argue about the teleological proof of God, or the cosmological proof of God, or the moral proof. There's a lot of people. But I heard somebody once say, a man or a woman with an argument is no match for a man or a woman with an experience and a story of their life changed by Jesus Christ. So here's my question for you. If all that I've said today makes sense to you, if all that I have shared With your thinking mind, you go, I think that's how I can know that God's real. My question for you is, wouldn't you want a relationship with God? Wouldn't you want that walking, talking relationship with Jesus Christ where He was just helping you every day become more and more like God? Can I read a scripture to you? This is a beautiful scripture. It gives us a promise about who we are. The scripture says simply this, that every one of us, To all of us, that's all of us, every one of us, to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. That's everybody, everybody, all of us, whosoever will, all of us, if you believe, you can receive that relationship and become a child of God. That's what God wants of every one of us. And I hope that I've made sense in trying to answer that question with you today. Is God real and how can I know it? There was a young man in our church not long ago, very, very smart young man, graduate of Georgia Tech, 
who after a few Sundays made an appointment with me. We just sat down in my office and we spent some time talking together. If I told you what company this guy worked for and what he did for a living, you would think, wow, brilliant, brilliant guy. And his question was the question of the day. Stephen, how can I know God exists? How can I know He's real? And as we began to move through these different understandings of being able to examine the universe we live in, begin to think about how things operate, and, and then even begin about, to think about our own journey, the more I journeyed with him, I realized that the question, is God real? That really wasn't his question. He came with that question, but that really wasn't his question. His real question, I think he knew God was real. His real question was, can I trust him? <laughs> By the way, another big God question, right? It's one thing to say, is God real? It's a totally different thing to say, is he trustworthy? What I want to tell you is that before you were ever born, God's plan was for you was that you would be his child. And he is unlike any other human father or human mother. He is perfect and he is trustworthy. He is most trustworthy. And today, you can become a child of God, the Bible says, by simply believing and receiving. If an 11-year-old boy on a beach in South Carolina could do that that day, but you're not at a beach. You're not in the mountains. Maybe God brought you to church today to tell you that He loves you. I hope, I hope that you'll make that prayer, whisper that prayer to your own soul and to the edge of the universe. Would you pray with me? Just trying to create a space here for just a moment. I just wonder if you, if you want to whisper that prayer to your own soul today. And if you want to whisper that prayer out to the edge of the universe, if you do, maybe you would pray that same prayer that I prayed. If you're there, God, I want to know that you're there and I want to, I want to believe. Are you there? Listen. Maybe you would make that prayer that says, I want to love you with my whole heart. I want to give you my life. And the best I know how today, I believe. I believe and I receive you. Come inside of me. Live and live inside of me and be my guide and be my purpose. And you got a lot to clean up. You got a lot to clean up, Jesus. But come inside of me and dwell inside of me. And may my life be your life. You know, if you whispered that prayer to your own soul and to the edge of the universe, if you believe and receive, the Bible would say you have become a child of God. You have received eternal life. And you have been enfolded into God's family. God, I thank you that we are here together here today. And I thank you that it is a, it is a big deal to be able to ask this question, but to understand that, God, you don't require blind faith you want us to trust you with informed faith. And I believe, Lord, that many of us here in this place have done that. Receive our faith and it may it be honoring to you. And we ask you, Lord, 
pick us up when we fall. Forgive us when we, when we make missteps. And Lord, may we be journeying with you all the days of our life and even into the next life. This is our prayer, Lord Jesus. We pray that in your holy name. Amen. Hey, before our ushers take our offering this morning, I just want to remind you of that little connect card on your worship guide.